Hey folks, Duncan Kinney here, host of The Progress Report. And while we've got a great episode with you and Thompson coming up, I just want to talk about the Harbinger Media Network for just a minute. It's a loose collection of lefty podcasts that we're a part of, and there's a lot of folks that produce really good stuff that I, I encourage you to listen to if you've got the time. A new pod on the network that I want to highlight is the latest from Aaron Giovanone at Sweater Weather. His latest does a deep dive in the history of one of the most commercially successful, yet most critically reviled Canadian bands of all time, Hannah Alberta's own Nickelback. So yeah, it's really great. That kind of cultural criticism from a lefty perspective, I think, is really needed. And Aaron does a really good job. Also, um, you know, this pod is back. It's our first podcast of 2023. You know, we are still producing content on the website, so please go to theprogressreport.ca as well as follow us on our social media feeds. And if you like the work that we do, you believe in our editorial vision, please consider becoming a monthly donor. There is a link in the show notes, or you can just go to theprogressreport.ca slash patrons and put in a credit card, become a recurring monthly donor. We would really appreciate it. Uh, Jim is back from surgery now. I'm back in the studio producing podcasts, so... Yeah, if you've got the money, if you've got the uh, the extra in your bank account every month, just a little bit, $5, $10, $15, whatever you can afford, Jim and I would really appreciate it. Now, on to the show. Friends and enemies, welcome to The Progress Report. I am your host, Duncan Kinney, recording today here in Amiskwichi, Wiskaigan, otherwise known as Edmonton, Alberta, here in Treaty 6 territory on the banks of the mighty Kasiskasawanasipi, or the North Saskatchewan River. Joining us today is Ewan Thompson. He is the executive director of Each and Every, a national volunteer coalition of businesses from 12 sectors supporting harm reduction and policy solutions to the drug poisoning crisis, and all around one of the like more smart and knowledgeable people you will find on the drug poisoning crisis in Alberta. So Ewan, welcome to the pod. Thanks so much, Duncan. Good to be here. So how are you doing? How are you feeling? Where where are your vibes at currently? This is this is a vibe check opening. That's my that's my, <laughs> that's my opening banter there for you. Well thanks. Um yeah, it's good good to check in with people these days. I, I think if you'd asked me a few days ago, it would have been just like very heavy existential dread. So I tried to make an adjustment. I, I went off of coffee for a few days. I'm I'm on day three of my recovery using uh you know, using tea as my my caffeine agonist therapy cat, as I like to call it. Um, so vibes are a little, little lighter now. I can feel some of the dread lifting and I'm starting to get back into a, a position where I'm like, you know, seeing, seeing what we can do instead of what we need to react to all the time. Sounds like you've adjusted your dose of one yeah. of your preferred drugs. Is that, <laughs> is that fair to say? Yeah, I'm kind of, I'm on like a, like a very steady 50 milligrams a day right now. It's, it's nice to know these things. Like, you know exactly what you're taking. So anyway, hats off to everybody out there that doesn't know what they're taking, but is, you know, struggling through managing, managing their dose without actually knowing what's in their substance. Mm -hmm. I know we joke, but caffeine is a drug. So, I mean, everyone uses drugs. You're a drug user. I'm a drug user. We all love our drugs. Um, so today we are going to spend some time talking about a subject that is, uh, there's a reason why you might be going through an existential crisis because the drug poisoning crisis is still happening and it's still really bad. And while Marshall Smith and Mike Ellis like to trumpet the Alberta model as some kind of amazing success story, the numbers are still, um, how do you say, uh, horrific, uh, right? 
Like, I, I assume you've looked at the numbers recently. Yeah, I mean, we're still well above where we were when we went into the pandemic. Um, you know, there's there's absolutely nothing to be celebrating right now. Um, we're still seeing 100 deaths a month. Uh, and, you know, we look back in time, we we've come from a situation where people were raising the alarm bells when there were 10 or 20 people dying every month. Um, we're now, you know, still five times above that. We hit 10 times above that or 20 times above that, not, not too long ago. And, and all we're really seeing right now is a a mitigation of the drug supply toxicity, uh, that's really driving a, a national downturn in deaths. So I don't think there's anything to celebrate. I think we're just leaving ourselves really open to the next wave of toxicity, which is actually starting to hit us now with, with xylazine entering the market. Yeah, this government really does like to compare itself uh, and the numbers that are coming out currently. And when I say currently, they're like usually is a six month delay, but like to the absolute horrific highs of like winter 2021, where it's like 200 people a month were dying. Uh, And but I did poke my head into the Alberta Substance Use Surveillance System kind of just before the pod. And we only have data up to August for 2022. And in those eight months, we have 976 deaths or Really, we're talking about four drug poisoning deaths every day in Alberta. We're on track for somewhere between 14, 1,500 drug poisoning deaths if those trends continue. And, uh, you know, just for comparison's sake, COVID-19 killed just over 2,100 people in Alberta in 2020, 2022. So it's like these are both still really bad and, <laughs> and you, it's still you, ongoing. You might characterize some of the COVID deaths as sort of non-preventable. Um the drug poisoning deaths are entirely preventable. Like, you know, when we were back at a time when we were losing, you know, like a, a handful of people every month, it, it was largely like accidental overdoses from people, you know, who maybe had prescriptions or so on. Um, you, you know, and these these like illegal drug market deaths were relatively rare um, because it was a pretty steady supply. People understood what they were getting most of the time. The heroin wasn't in the cocaine. The cocaine wasn't in the heroin. Um, and and we didn't have any fentanyl around back then. Um, so we've really just like ramped up our, you know, as we've ramped up our enforcement efforts and tried to get drugs out of society, um, the the opposite has really, really held true. And um, the drugs have just gotten far worse. So people are, are struggling way, way more today than they were 20 years ago. Um, and, and the death numbers reflect that. Mm-hmm. Yeah, we really are in like drug war 12.0. Like surely this time it will work. Yeah. Um, because when you hear, you know, conservative politicians talk about their solutions, I mean, they do, they do kind of put up a face about, uh, you know, harm reduction. They kind of can't discount it entirely, even though that's what all of their policy actions do is, is undermine actual harm reduction. And then they talk about recovery a lot. And then they, you know, Pierre Polyev is still like, and we have to stop the flow of drugs at the border from China. And it's like, bro. Like, is this like the the black candle? Is this 1910s? Is, are you are you fucking channeling Emily Murphy right now? Like, are you fucking kidding me? We we will never stop the flow of drugs from anywhere. One and two, like that rhetoric is is, is like has consistently been used to demonize the other for more than a hundred years now. This is why people that don't understand the drug supply should never be touching drug policy. Um, like we're making fentanyl in Alberta. Does he know that? Does he know that we have super labs that are making like the full supply of fentanyl in Alberta if we needed it? Um, it's it's not 
you know, it's not hard to do that. I could, I could bake fentanyl in my kitchen this afternoon if I wanted. Like it's, you know, anybody with a basic amount of chemistry knowledge can do this stuff now. So um, it's, you know, this, this war, the war was lost ages ago. And, and really, I think what we need to understand is that, that the war was never meant to be won. The war serves its own purpose. And and we can kind of get into that. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Exactly. So the inciting incident for this podcast, the reason why I reached out to you and was like, hey, you want to come on was just an absolutely god awful bit of stenography from one of my least favorite journalists in Alberta, Jen Gerson, who sat down with uh, whatever his name is, Marshall Smith, the chief of staff to Daniel Smith, no relation, and the architect of the Alberta model. But before we even get into that fucking atrocity of journalism, I want to talk about a story that came out earlier this week. Because it does highlight a lovely bit of hypocrisy from our our friends in the Alberta government. Headline here from the CBC, it's confidential. Alberta won't say if overdose response app is saving lives. And the first couple of paragraphs, I'll just read them out here. Nearly two years after the launch of an overdose prevention app, the Alberta government refuses to say whether the digital overdose response system is saving lives. A spokesperson for the Minister of Mental Health and Addiction would only say the app has been downloaded 3,700 times and has nearly 1,100 yet registered users. But has it saved lives? The government won't say. Doors is a confidential and anonymous service, said Colin Atchison in an email to CBC. So you... Isn't it very interesting to see the government talk of the value of anonymity for substance users for their app that nobody uses and doesn't do shit, but then totally discount the value of anonymity for substance users who want to go to supervised consumption sites? Yeah, I'm so glad, you know, I'm so glad Colin Atchison, you know, the press secretary for the Minister of Mental Health and Addictions is so on board with this app because it seems like nobody else is. And I think it needs all the support that he can give it right now. Um, Like this is this is an app that was pointless from day one. It does absolutely nothing that other apps that already existed didn't do, but it does serve a a very important purpose for the province, which is to gather as much data on drug users as it possibly can. And like all the more hilarious to that is like in the story, there is a made in Alberta solution that does the exact same thing, but better and in a more transparent fashion uh, called NORS, the National Overdose Response System, which connects you with an actual person from the very get go, as opposed to the Alberta app, which is just like, if you don't press a button after like a minute or five minutes or something like uh, uh, like 911 is called and just tracks to your phone, like the objectively better app already existed was created by a guy who works at the university of Alberta and the, and the Alberta government was like, nah, now nah, we're, we're going to do our own thing. Yeah. I mean, i part of it was an obvious sort of like patronage play for the developer that, you know, works in the oil fields. Typically, I, I think that seems fairly obvious at this point. Um, you know, the app like does nothing other than just serve the province's Alberta model a little bit more. Um, and like, I think at the end of the day, it's, it's, it's to make them look like they're doing something when when they're actually not doing anything. And this this app has been you know downloaded by what three thousand people or something. It's cited like a, you know a small number of people have downloaded it. Uh, they don't tell us how many active users there are, but uh, I saw an app nerd actually pop up on Twitter and reply and said like, "Hey, app nerd here." I know for a fact that like if you have that many downloads, the chances are pretty good that you only have about a dozen or two users. So that's that's where we're at right now. Oh yeah, this this app is uh, hilariously like underused. Like, is not doing a single thing to like actually save lives. Like, you know, maybe if they were lucky, like one or two over the past 
couple of years that it's been functioning, but that would seem to be, you know, a very generous, generous assumption. And, and, uh, and you're right. It is this kind of to make them seem like something like it doesn't cost very much money. It's like less than $200,000 a year they give to this app developer and, uh, and Bob's your uncle, they get to point to it in their, in their press releases and in their press conferences. And it's part of their rhetoric. And like, if it doesn't work, I mean, that doesn't matter to them, right? They're, they're not, they're not here to, to make things work anyways. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. That's uh that's pretty much a good way to underline most of the actions that are being taken. Um, yeah. And, and I think like getting, you know, getting from that to the Alberta model, you know, the, the doors plays a really important uh, role within the Alberta model as we'll call it. And I think maybe we'll get more into that uh, after hearing about what, uh, what went on in this interview. Well, yeah. So yeah, again, the inciting incident was this freaking Jen Gerson interview with Marshall Smith. And I think we, I do want to read out some passages and like just marvel at the amount of like self-delusion and just straight up evil present in this guy. Like this guy is a bad person who is doing bad things and is using the power available to him as a senior and highly placed government staffer to affect drug policy in a way that will continue to kill people in a way that like, you know, you just don't see in, in, in any other kind of epidemic. And as you said earlier, these are preventable deaths, right? Entirely preventable deaths. And, you know, like we've got a, a cohort of people who are in extremely high levels of power in this government and other governments as well, but, but particularly this one where they, they have it in their heads that, you know, we actually have a chance to get rid of drugs in society, but their their definition of drug is very kind of narrow and, and doesn't include all those other people like all of us really that that use things like caffeine, that use things like alcohol. Um, and and the goal here, in my view, with Marshall Smith, and this is a name that everybody should know in Alberta by now. He's the chief of staff to the you know to the premier. Um, he's got a long history in the addiction treatment field. He's very well connected with addiction treatment uh, practitioners with, with, you know, companies and, and private organizations that that's do addiction treatment across Western Canada. And um, it's, it seems pretty obvious that they're the ones kind of steering the ship on, on this policy, on these policy measures, Um, you know, right out of the get-go when the UCP took power, they, they made very obvious overtures to the effect that they were going to dismantle harm reduction, that they didn't believe in it, that it was just leaving people, um, you know, in their misery of drug use. Again, like totally narrow, narrowly defining what drug use actually is um, and, and just kind of signaling from day one that their goal was going to be abstinence from all illegal drugs for all people uh, under all circumstances. And, uh, and so here's how we're going to do it. And it's, it's now we're watching, you know, more and more of these building blocks of the system being put in place as, as the months go on. And I think it should be really obvious to Albertans by now um, what this was all about, which is, you know, uh, patronage for the addiction treatment industry and really supervision and monitoring and control of populations of people who use drugs, many of which are racialized, many of which are indigenous. Um, and that, uh, you know, it, it doesn't actually serve any purpose in terms of removing drugs from society. Yeah. And you know what, fuck it. We're going to keep teasing that Jen Gerson stuff because I think Marshall Smith as a, as a figure and as a character in this kind of broader narrative is important to, to examine just for a few minutes because, 
he was a high flying, you know, BC liberal staffer. And, and just for everyone who's not familiar with the politics of BC, BC liberals are like the conservatives of BC. He was a high flying BC liberal staffer back in the like early 2000s who found himself, like so many other folks, you know, addicted to drugs. He eventually ended up on the street. He was arrested. Uh, he did a little bit of time in prison. And on his way kind of out of this spiral, he found himself at Baldy Hughes, which is a treatment facility near Prince George uh, in northern BC, kind of close to the Alberta border. And Baldy Hughes is actually a former military base full of like former, full of like poisons and toxins and just like leftover shit from the American military. <laughs> um, but they thought it was a good place to start up a. Uh, <laughs> a treatment facility for people who were trying to get off drugs. And he ended up going there. He ended up working there. And that's really his kind of ascent into the kind of management and executive levels of these, you know, recovery and treatment facilities of which he is so fond of promoting. And, and so he's, when he speaks about recovery, he speaks from a very personal first person perspective. He's like, when I was on the street or when I was homeless is a very common rhetorical trick you will hear from Marshall Smith, right? And so with that in mind, uh, you know, he has constructed essentially this, this model of, yeah, supervised consumption sites, harm reduction can get fucked, uh, recovery over everything. We are going to funnel a bunch of money into recovery, which again is an incredibly ill-defined term, which means 17 different things to 17 different people. And, and even the, the, like the foundation, and even when you start getting into the foundations of what, like what modern drug recovery is, it's really shifty and shady. Like I just listened to uh, a true and on five-part podcast on Synanon, which is really the foundation of like from my understanding, the foundation of most like adolescent drug recovery, which was then kind of transposed up to adult drug recovery. And it was a fucking cult, <laughs> you know, like, yeah. Yeah. This, I mean, the, the whole thing is, is about net widening for addiction treatment. And, and I think like what a lot of people miss here is, is that there's a bigger field at play here that I think a lot, like, it's really important to understand what, what constitutes this uh, this entire battle? Which, you know, like we're we're looking at a situation where the police uh, are being scrutinized, like for everything right now. What, what are what are we paying them to do? You know, and so they're looking around, saying, "Well, you know, like we we chase around the drug dealers, we chase around the gangs, we chase around like all these different people who are pretty much just all affiliated with the drug trade." So, okay, so it would be bad for us if we removed the drug trade and replaced it with something legitimate, right? Like that's bad for policing. Um, the, the union's not going to be happy with that. So they need to find ways to, you know, integrate themselves with different elements of, uh, of healthcare, um, of social services and so on. So when you see these, uh, you know, like um, non-police crisis intervention teams going out in the streets, um, they're effectively working hand in hand with police now in, in Calgary. Um, and like it's it's better it's still better than having police go and do that. I'm not I'm not criticizing that part. It's that the police are in there kind of now monitoring alongside the social services agencies. Um, but what I think what probably happened a while back, you know, in a way that nobody was really aware of at the time, is that the police also saw this opportunity within addiction treatment to kind of like reinforce the carceral system that that benefits them and and start to integrate themselves with with addiction treatment and start to reframe a lot of our criminal system as um, really a way to get 
um, to get people into a health system that is still very much carceral in nature. Um, and, and really that's, so when I look at like addiction treatment, um, and I think about like how we define recovery and how, def, you know, recovery is defined as abstinence by the, by the state, by Alberta in particular, um, I, I, it, it makes me kind of realize that like a lot of, of this, you know, this discussion, this, um, this rhetoric that's being played out is about, um, reframing the conversation in a way that benefits policing ultimately and, and, and like shores up their jobs, shores up their funding. Um, and, and there's so much more to it, but like, you know, when we talk about these, you know, these addiction treatment, these, uh, sorry, these, um, public safety task forces that are playing out in Edmonton and Calgary, like it's all kind of part and parcel with, with what I see as this broader field of like police, addiction treatment, um, starting to integrate themselves more, more closely in order to reinforce the carceral state. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you're, you're absolutely correct. And, and Chief Dale McPhee here in Edmonton has been very clever, very forward thinking, you know, to, to kind of co-op this language, to build this, uh, these, uh, these alliances, you know, with Marshall Smith and with this, with the recovery industry, with the recovery capital conference, you know, which he is a frequent visitor uh, of like, yeah, this is this is a, a part of a broader strategy, but but let's get back to let's get to the to the Jen Gerson story because I think there's a piece in here that I want to pull out, and it really is a, a piece of a piece of Marshall Smith kind of patting himself on the back so hard that you know I'm, I'm worried about his shoulder. But here, here's a brief pa- package on the impeccable, brilliant data that they keep in Alberta. So Jen Gerson says, so do we have a sense of what the usage statistics are in Alberta versus other more liberal jurisdictions? Marshall Smith, well, you absolutely can. In fact, we're one of the only jurisdictions in Canada where you can actually do that because we keep track of this information. They don't do that in other jurisdictions. Alberta has one of the most sophisticated substance use data analytics systems anywhere in North America. We're the envy of North America. It's called the Alberta use Alberta Substance Use Surveillance System, and it's available to the public. I'll give you an important anecdote in a second, but we post our data, our raw data, online for everyone to see, and we post it without comment. Um, which is very funny. <laughs> they don't. Uh, uh, British British Columbia is the alternative. Puts out a news release and a couple of graphs every month, and they use those opportunities to advance a narrative to tell people that they should be thinking about the data. We think that people who study these issues should be free of that type of influence, and so we post the data without comment. Ewan, I know you've put together an open letter, uh, and you've got a lot of, you've actually thought about this quite a bit, about what kind of data that actually does need to be made public when it comes to the drug poisoning crisis. What is that data? What do you want? And why isn't the government giving it to, giving it to us? Okay. Yeah. First of all, I just want to comment on a couple things like in that statement. First, you know, BC actually puts out its data in a monthly, timely manner that we can keep up with what's going on in the crisis. So, you know, you you mentioned earlier, we don't have data past August right now. It is mid-January and we don't have the September death data, October, November, December. That's ridiculous. BC's data is up to date within two months always. They, they never miss it. And and they, yeah, maybe they put out data that shows like, okay, like here's what we think from my professional opinion as the chief coroner. Here's what seems to be happening, you know, as a result of what we're seeing in in these, you know, in these, um, you know, people that are coming in these, these human bodies that are, that are showing up at our door. We're measuring what sorts of drugs are in them. Um, Alberta has has a different system that really doesn't allow us to see as as transparently that the drug poisoning crisis is a contamination crisis, is a regulation crisis, and um, you know, and just I think the timeliness is is really important to hammer home. So that's that's not transparent. First of all, second, um, the transparency of the actual addiction treatment. Um, 
you know, services that are in Alberta. We put together this open letter. It's got 50 different data points that are not shared by the province that would really help us evaluate whether or not any of this effort, any of this money is actually going to useful places. Um, so we don't know how the government defines a treatment space, for example. Um, that's like number one on our list. We've got this whole open letters, you know. Um, do, how many people are exiting addiction treatment into houselessness? How many people do not have a place to go after they leave? And 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 like, what does that mean for whether they're going to relapse or not if they did actually achieve abstinence after going through this treatment program? Um, you know, what's the pipeline of personal health numbers here, uh, you know, that are being collected at, at supervised consumption sites that are being collected at uh, addiction treatment facilities? How are they collected and reported to, to uh, AHS, for example? Um, and most importantly, probably, like, what are the actual outcomes of these? How many people are dead in the weeks, months, or year after that they go through abstinence-based treatment? How many people are dying or, or experiencing overdoses inside of these facilities? We don't know any of this sort of data. And if we're going to evaluate and actually, you know, maybe maybe there are some big props uh, due to the government for some of the efforts they've put in here. I, I'm like, I'll be first to say I don't have anything against voluntary addiction treatment. If people want to access these services, I think that's really important for people to have. It. These are it's one more option, one more tool in the toolbox for everybody to be that you know they should be able to access. But you know if uh, if we're not able to evaluate how these programs are running, like for all we know, they're just having like prayer circles in in these every day and and you know forcing people to read the Bible and memorize passages or something. Like we actually don't know. So that's that's important. We need to know what's actually that evidence-based practices are being used, um, that people aren't being excluded on the basis of, you know, say race or, uh, or, or religious belief, um, and, and that they're, you know, really being given every opportunity to, to pursue their own form of recovery, however they define it. Yeah, I mean, I think it is important to point out that, yes, recovery is good. If people want to, to go to a recovery, recovery facility and, and detox and do 12 step or do the smart system or whatever it is that they feel, you know, would be helpful in order to, to, to stop them from, you know, having a substance use disorder, do it. But like, you know, this government has talked a great, a huge game about all the, the, the recovery treatment spaces that they're building, that they're in the process of building, that they will build that already exist. And then the number 8,000 treatment beds has been bandied about quite frequently by, by this government, by Mike Ellis. Um, is this government, has this government built anywhere near 8,000 treatment beds in the three and a half years that they've been around? Ewan? No, not even, not even a fraction of that, but like it, it's, I, we don't know is the problem. Like they're not transparent about any of this. I mean, they're still saying like these recovery communities, these therapeutic communities are still coming online. There's this one in Red Deer that's about to open. Um, like that's the first one, you know, out of the five that they had said they were going to build. So um, like even the stuff that they say they're, you know, putting all this, all this effort and resources and public resources into is not really being done. It's just being announced and then re-announced and then re-re-announced. <laughs> and so people that actually want to access these services, I, you know, I know people that have tried to get into them and they can't. So like, it's, this is, you know, this is a situation where um, they, they really haven't achieved much and yet they're claiming 
victory over over this crisis that you know is still wiping out a huge number of our young people like you got to emphasize that most of the people dying from this crisis are well under the age of 60 most of them are between 20 and 40 uh, and some of them are as young as like 12 or 13 so um you know like this is it's just the level of the crisis is such that we should be treating it with emergency measures put everything on the table all the options that people need and that are asking for and uh instead we're just narrowing the scope more and more as time goes on and saying like no you, like your your goal is abstinence i don't care what your you know we're going to tell you what your goal is and and it has to be abstinence and if if that's not it then well we're sorry but we're not going to support you in any way yeah, I mean, in that Jen Gerson article, Smith claims that there are 1,300 treatment beds in Alberta, which seems wildly high, uh, especially when you say you go to, let's if you go to the VOPD uh, page, like the Virtual Opioid Dependency Program page, and the page they have on rehab, they only have 29 rehab spaces listed on that page. If you go to the Recovery Access Center, maybe you get up to like 40 or 50. Uh, but but those aren't like treatment spaces for everyone. Some of those are for very specific groups. Some of them are for women. Some of them are indigenous people. Some of them are specifically for men. Like to treat them as like, it's not an undifferentiated mass. It's, it's not like you, you don't just go to the emergency room. It's not like going to the emergency room where eventually you will get treatment. It's this variegated custom, you know, bespoke system that like, only there are only a handful of operators in the space and like you know one thing that i'm interested in quantifying is how much of the treatment system in alberta is 12 step and 12 step facilitation because like there's lots of data to show that 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 it only has a very minor positive effect on getting people to be abstinent from drugs you know like yeah and yeah, sure. Like the the 10% of folks or whoever that, that actually, you know, that can get through 12 step and, and achieve abstinence and stuff, they, they become like evangelicals of it afterwards, which, you know, understandable, it worked for you, like you want the rest of the world to know about it, they should try it, whatever. But like, it can't be the only option on the table. And the thing that, that I want to highlight here as well is that like almost none of these facilities allow people to come in and continue using methadone and suboxone. You can search that like in Calgary, I think I found one or something. It's it, it, so people like if they're, if their goal is to get off of fentanyl and then, and then go to like lifelong methadone use, first of all, they can't get into treatment to do that. Like you can't, you almost can't access treatment. That's going to, you know, per permit you to continue a methadone program. Um, and second of all, the government won't support you. So if you don't have access, if you don't have, sorry, um, like insurance coverage to to cover your methadone, the, the government gives you four months and then it's up. Like the virtual opioid dependency program will only support you for the four months and then that's it. So again, they're defining your recovery in a way that excludes anybody uh, that wants to say, stay on methadone. Um, yeah, if you're not off methadone in four months, like, fuck you, buddy, like, pay for it. And then you're back to the fentanyl supply, guaranteed. Like, if somebody's coming off a of methadone, like, nine times out of ten, they're going to turn to uh, back to the street supply, and that's going to put them at even higher risk than when they came off it in the first place. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Yeah, let, let's talk about safe supply for a minute, because, you know it's used as a bit of a scare word by people like Smith and Polyev and Daniel Smith. And, you know, the, the rhetoric that's used against this is like, we're against safe supply because it's flooding the community with hard drugs or whatever. And 
you know, this is the rhetoric they're, they're using to kill the idea of safe supply before it even gets implemented at scale anywhere. Here's here's the passage, again, just uncritically repeated by Jen Gerson in her, in her Q&A with Marshall Smith. Quote from Marshall Smith, the concern with safe supply and the problem with the literature that's being generated by the people are, who are running safe supply is that none of the things that they're measuring exam harms beyond the harms done to the addict that they're studying. The big problems with safe supply is the diversion of these drugs into the broader population. For example, if you live in a home where one person in that home has an opioid prescription, everybody in that house is five times more likely to develop a substance use disorder. Oh, my God. And it's <laughs> like, OK, sure, that's that sucks. But like, do you know what else sucks? When your fucking dad dies from drug poisoning, <laughs> like there's there's a reason why the the primary thing that they're measuring is the harm done to the substance user because if that person dies, they don't get the fucking come back. That 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 figure is so misleading because it 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 um it kind of creates this uh, correlate correlation is causation sort of dynamic. Like, okay, so if somebody in your house uses opioids, then you're five times more likely to use opioids. Like it has no appreciation whatsoever for, for trauma. Um, and for these things that are actually linked to what we would consider addiction, you know, these sorts of behaviors come from somewhere. It's not just, 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 just having the drug in your airspace makes you more likely to be addicted to it. Right. Is, is the kind of underlying assumption. There. It is the way that Marshall Smith and, and that cohort of people seem to approach this whole problem. I, you know, I personally cannot be anywhere near a drug and therefore nobody else can. And um, I just think it's so sad that, that we're being towed along by this mentality that, um, that just does not like con contextualize the crisis in a way that, like you just said, you know, what if your dad died of drug poisoning? That is a super traumatic event that you, you know, you're going to, it's going to take you the rest of your life to untangle that. And you may fall into substance use during that time while you're trying to get, you know, work it out. Um, there may be other bad things that have happened to you in your life and like drugs provide some sort of, uh, you know, like relief from that. I think we need to appreciate that, you know, these drugs in many cases are pain medications that help people, uh, you know, adjust to pain in their life. Um, they shouldn't, you know, physical pain or emotional pain, like these, we, we don't need to def differentiate these to that level. And, and a lot of people are self-medicating um, with them. So, you know, help, help the folks get off of them th that want to get off of them, but people that are, you know, are benefiting them in, from them in different ways or whose, you know, whose biggest barrier to life is not the drug, but the circumstances around them um, should be helped, you know, with regulated supply. And, and that's really where the idea of safe supply comes from. And when it comes to safe supply, Marshall Smith really is following in the footsteps of her boss, Daniel Smith, of just like out and out telling straight up stupid, easily falsifiable lies. Uh, in, in this Jen Gerson article, quote, in my day, when I was on the street, a tab of morphine cost $20 for one tablet. Today on the streets of Vancouver, you can pick up a tab of morphine for $1. That's how much it is on the street. That's how much flooding of the market they've done. This is Marshall Smith intimating that the government is flooding the streets with $1 morphine. That is so um, dumb. <laughs> that is just like objectively not true. Like it's it's so stupid and easily fucking pr disprovable that it's like, how does Jed Gerson not interject and be like, oh yeah, one dollar morphine, eh? That seems wild. It's like okay, yeah, one dollar morphine. Thanks. Yeah. Thank, in this in this fucking day and age, with inflation being what it is, and you think drug dealers are selling morphine for a dollar a tap? And, and Marshall, nobody's using morphine. Like. Nobody uses morphine anymore. Fentanyl is the thing people are using and they're paying 10 bucks a point for it. Like that's, that's what the drug supply is. And, and this idea that like we flooded the market with some drug that absolutely fucking nobody is using is just, it's laughable. And it shows a complete disconnect from this guy and what's actually going on on the street, despite his history there. 
Mm-hmm. That is a hilarious little excerpt from that Jen Gerson piece of just like, oh yeah, there's one dollar tabs of morphine on this street in Vancouver. It's because of because of the government. It's like, get the fuck out of here. Um, so I, I think everything we've talked about here has been a relatively. Well, relatively is, is maybe not the right word, but a, but a, an explanation of what the Alberta model is, how it works. And so, you and I'll put this question to you. How do we destroy it and discredit it? How do we make sure that the Alberta model is something that's confined to the dustbins of history? Well, I think defining it properly is probably step one. People need to understand really what's at play on this field. Um you know, like the Alberta model really is a net widening tactic for addiction treatment, for private addiction treatment interests. So it's almost kind of a tip of the spear of healthcare privatization in a way. Everybody should kind of look at it that way because a lot of the experimentation that's being done within addiction treatment um, is going to apply to most types of healthcare. So um, look at it that way. It, it affects everybody in that very direct way. Um, so like, what is the Alberta model? I, you know, I, I look at it as, you know, this, like anything that's going to help widen the net for addiction treatment. So um, getting uh, personal health numbers at the supervised consumption sites, getting people's information on this doors app, for example, um, you know, integrating the police with the, with the health and social services so that when somebody shows up uh, like in a jail cell at the police, they're being held or whatever, they've been arrested, that they now are offered addiction treatment. Okay, you're unhoused, you must be addicted. Here, have this um, have this access to our like our addiction treatment service, and then the government or the public pays for that person to go through an addiction treatment, which they may not have needed, and then released back into houselessness um, afterwards. Um, you know, removing services that don't widen the net or that actually like constrict the net for addiction treatment. So things like supervised consumption sites, things like uh, prescribing of drugs for people who don't want to go through addiction treatment. And finally, yeah, like that addiction, uh, removing access to prescriptions. Um, That's what's happening under the narcotics transition services program right now. People are across the province are being stripped of their access to hydromorphone or dilaudid. And and they're being forced into these centralized facilities that will let them take, you know, their one tab of drug, put it under their mouth, uh, under their tongue, make sure it's swallowed, and and then go on their day for the next few hours until they need their next dose. Uh, you can do that for a few months, and then you've got to be on methadone or suboxone, and then a few months after that, you've got to be off of everything. So we're, we're you know, that's what this is really about, forcing people into abstinence. Um, and, like, we got to back up and just look at, like, at the, the greater context, what, why are we doing this type of advocacy? It's to stop drug poisoning deaths. And every drug poisoning death is attributed, really attributable to this type of thinking. Um, like, you know, getting people into abstinence. It's just that Alberta is taking it to an extreme. You know, this is a national problem, but Alberta seems to be uh, taking this really hard line on it without sharing any data. I think it's more about, the Alberta model is more about talking about what you're doing than it is about actually helping people who use drugs. And and so it's it's very convenient for conservative politicians to pick it up because it's like, look, we get to talk about helping people. We get to talk about getting people into recovery. You don't have to do anything. No one's going to fucking audit us. No one's going to like actually check in and say, oh, yeah, did you actually build those 8,000 recovery spaces? Like, can anyone actually get into recovery or uh, a recovery space right now? Like, what does recovery even fucking mean? Like, it's it's funny you do have this opportunity to like, if you're going to spend a gajillion dollars, unlimited budget on, on treatment and recovery, you might actually be able to find, uh, you know, recovery treatments that, that like work more than the, like, whatever the like one point, whatever percent that, that you get out of, um, 
out of like 12 step, you know, but instead you're just shoveling money to like people who run a business essentially who are, whose job it is to fill beds and, and like the potential for abuse is rife. Like when you talk about, you know, the troubled teen industry, when you talk about adolescence in, in these type of treatment centers, like the history there is really bad. And then when you, when you transpose it up to adults, like, because the ultimate goal here seems to just to be to lock up unhoused people for doing drugs in public, like this is, you know, it's, it's like warehousing unhoused people seems to be the kind of end game here. Right. Yeah. It's, it's, it's incarceration by another name. And, um, you know, it's, it's important to close the loop and just look at like, who's, who's really benefiting from this. I think you, you identified like these businesses, the, these private organizations that are doing addiction treatment. Um, I suspect at the end of the day, like it, it will be beneficial to have more of these with more resources, um, for some people so that they can access these services more easily. Like I'm not contesting that if they, if people are looking for voluntary treatment, but it's an interesting thing when you decriminalize drugs and when you give people other options, voluntary treatment is rarely the one they choose. <laughs> like, um, Dave Lucas is a, is a really you know good authority on this. He's worked in drug treatment courts for a long time. Uh, and he did a really great podcast episode with narcotica not too long ago. I think everybody should read that or listen to that because it's, um, he really goes into like, okay, what happened in Portland? What happened in Oregon when, when they decriminalized and like what has happened with voluntary treatment since then? Most people just like have kind of lost interest in it and they're, they're doing other stuff now. Um, so it kind of just goes to show you like, you know, as again, this is kind of just correlation, but when people have other options and they're not being kind of like bullied into going into treatment and they're not being, it's not being presented as the absolute only dis- like choice they get to make here. Um, or the only the only option on the table, then uh, they will find other things to do and and other ways to recovery and and ways to define their own recovery. Yeah, and when I talk about how this is all just a setup for warehousing on house people, like that might sound like a bit like hyperbole, but like Chief Dale McPhee and David Eby and Daniel Smith and Marshall Smith all have involuntary treatment, or let's just call it what it is, forced treatment. Like that's that's really what they want to fucking do. They are fucking straining against the leash to just start sending people to involuntary treatment. And like they are, it's not, it's probably not advantageous to do it right now. Cause like one, you're, you're right up against an election cycle. You know, you, people are going to get caught up in this kind of dragnet. You're going to get bad stories. But like if Daniel Smith wins this next election, like I have no doubt that we will start to see Alberta leading the way on involuntary treatment in Canada and, you know, David Eby, the, the leader of the BC NDP, the premier of BC, you know, he floated this idea. He talked about it. He was like, maybe we should do, you know, sometimes people can't help themselves, et cetera, et cetera. Mm-hmm. And then everyone who was fucking around him told him to shut the fuck up. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And he backed off. And, and he backed off of it. And now he's like, oh, we're going to listen to the experts on it now. And every fucking expert who looks at this says, you don't do involuntary fucking treatment because we tried this 30 fucking years ago and it didn't work. Well, it killed it doesn't a lot of fucking work. It continues it to people. kill people. Yeah. People are put at it higher risk. People. It's rife for abuse. Like you're essentially incarcerating people with like none of the even like minor protection systems that you would have in a in a like in a jail or a prison context. Like it's absolutely horrific what we did to people 30 years ago in in, in with forced treatment. And they just want to fucking do it again. Yeah, and I wouldn't be surprised to see it, you know, rolled out in in incarceration settings, like as as a way that could duck the public eye it would be 
you know, it's like, and not to give them any ideas, but I'm sure they've thought about this a million times already. You know, it's too bad because we could be going in a totally different direction right now. And, and like, this is, you know, we're always in this reactive stance, but if you look at what the feds have done, like they actually opened that um, SCS and Drumheller to like, like massive approval, you know, once, once the, even the guards were, were clapping it along afterwards. Like we know that supervised consumption sites in a, in a prison setting now will save lives and help people um, you know, gain some level of stability and, and connection with the health care system if they need it and so on. So like we just we have to start offering these alternatives and showing the data and showing the telling the stories and, have, you know, having people tell their own stories so that everybody understands like another world is possible within this. We don't need to continue feeding into this precarity model where, you know, people at the bottom rungs of society are just continually oppressed and, and run through the washing machine of like, is it incarceration? Is it addiction treatment? We don't know. Like here, like have, you know, have, have one month stay free and then you're back out into houselessness. Um, we just, we got to get away from that and start offering, um, a, you know, alternative ideas, alternative vision for, for what this can be, because yes, you're right. Alberta is absolutely accelerating towards this. They're not even hiding it anymore. Nicholas Milliken was very mask off in his description of where they're going with these public safety task forces in Alberta, in uh, Edmonton and Calgary last month. Um, it, it's not a secret anymore. Like they're, they're going for involuntary forced addiction treatment, um, for unhoused folks who, you know, they deem as having problematic, like addiction problems or mental health as, as the top issue in their life. Yeah. Anyone who does drugs in public, you know, is, is a target, right? If you do drugs in public, you, you chief Dale McPhee essentially said it like, my goal is to fucking stop that. And it's like, you put the chief of police in charge of stopping public drug use. What the fuck do you think is going to happen? <laughs> um, and so, you know, he talks a good game about public health. He talks a good game about integrating social services, but he is the chief of police. He is in charge of 1,900 police officers. What do fucking police do? Well, they have a vested interest. They have a vested interest in see, seeing all of this go forward and into to not seeing, uh, you know, a, a fair, equitable model of decriminalization move forward or safe supply for that matter. Uh, these are things that would absolutely reduce crime. Um, you know, the, the chief or the, the police force in Calgary recently told us that 90% of property crime is committed by about 100 active individuals, all of which or most of which have um, pretty significant drug habits. Um, and so we know that if we just offered them some of their basic needs, you know, make sure that they're housed, make sure that they have access to safe supply. Chances are that property crime is going to diminish significantly or disappear altogether for some of them. Um, but but that's not what they want. They want longer detention times. They want people to ramp up their, you know, their storefront, like thick glass and, and CCTV cameras and stuff like that. They, they want people to be scared. They want people to be scared of people who are unhoused um, because it serves its own purpose in, in shoring up police resources and shoring up, uh, and nowadays, and shoring up uh, addiction treatment resources as well. Yeah. Well, there you have it, people. Uh, I think it's important to remember a better world is possible. You know, you and did spend a bit of time there talking about how we can imagine a better world, you know, where we care for each other. It doesn't have to just be incarceration and police. Uh, the Alberta model, I think, is incredibly evil, must be discredited and destroyed. Anytime you any you hear people using the talking points that you hear coming out of the mouth of Chief Dale McPhee or Marshall Smith, you know, or Nicholas Milliken or Mike Ellis, like be very wary. And like, you know, it's not, it's not about the arguments. It's not about the proof. It is about talking to your friends and neighbors about how 
you know, this problem actually gets solved. And it's never going to be about enforcement. It's never going to be about locking people up. But that's where it's all headed. So, absolutely. So, Ewan, uh, that's it for today. How can people follow along with the work that you do? If people wanted to sign that open letter, what's the best way to find it? Like, uh, now is the time to kind of plug your pluggables. Yeah, cool. Um, okay, so first of all, if you are a business operator or if you know people, get friends that run businesses or whatever, send them to eachandevery.org. They can sign up for free there. Um, and just join us as a member. Then, you know, we'll be doing advocacy kind of on your behalf to make these uh, this sort of world, uh, uh, you know, bring it closer to reality. Because uh, we've got a lot of ideas. We've got a lot of support. Um, and, and there's you know, there's a lot of allies that we're trying to help support within this as well. Um, if you are in Edmonton, which I'm sure a lot of the listeners are, you should come out to Metro Cinema on February 16th. There's going to be a few of us there, uh, you know, talking after a film screening. We're going to show uh, Love in the Time of Fentanyl. It's all based in Vancouver's downtown east side at an overdose prevention site. So you can really get inside of one of these sites and understand what happens at them. How do people form connections? Um, you know, how are lives saved? within these facilities and so on. Um, and that's being hosted by Michael Jans, I believe, uh, along with a couple other organizations. So we'll be there with Moms Stop the Harm and, um, and some others. And um, if you are involved in any way with a community association or a business association, please, again, send them, send them to us, uh, send them to eachandevery.org, to the contact form, just to get in touch. We, we want to talk to them. This is, uh, this is a crisis that's affecting every community and every, you know, every business district. Uh, and again, we've got better ways to deal with the problem than just moving people from one neighborhood to the next and then waiting them for them to complete that cycle and, and show up again and, and you know, still have the same problems. Um, so we, we can help people, you know, better and, and, and help businesses be better towards other people as well. I think in their neighborhoods, we don't, you know, everybody's seen the, the fire hose or whatever the the hosing down of people, uh, in front of storefronts, like that's kind of the exact opposite of the sort of thing we need to be doing and, and that businesses can really take, uh, take to heart. So, uh, I think with that, I'll probably I'll leave it. There's, there's lots that people can do, but just, I think the first step is just get in touch with, uh, with me if you, if you, you're looking for ideas or, um, um, you know, try and connect us with businesses. All right. Thanks so much, you. And thanks for coming on the pod. And thanks for the work that you do with each and every and in your personal life. It's, uh, it's incredibly needed and it's important work. Um, folks, if you like this podcast, if you want to join the 500 or so other folks who help keep this little independent media project going, I'd be very grateful, as would Jim, who is just now coming back uh, from his time off and his surgery. You can go to theprogressreport.ca slash patrons, put in your credit card and contribute. A little monthly contribution recurring would be very much appreciated. Also, if you have any notes, thoughts, or comments, I am very easy to get a hold of. You can reach me by email at uh, duncank at progressalberta.ca, and I spend far too much time on Twitter at at DuncanKinney or at ProgressAlberta. Uh, thank you to Jim Story for editing this podcast. Thank you to Cosmic Family Communist for our amazing theme. Thank you for listening, and goodbye.